Well, good morning to all of you. I'm excited to be here this morning. And I'm excited about uh, looking into the Word of God again this morning. Um, wasn't sure exactly where to go this week. Um, I, had, I had been wanting to do a, a short series on Second Peter, since we covered first, the first letter of Peter to the churches in northern Turkey. Um, I thought it would be great if we could follow that up with, with a second epistle. And, and uh wasn't sure if this was the right time to start yet, but... Um, it seemed like God just kept bringing me back to 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 this um, this first chapter of Second Peter. So we're going to start into this here today. And um, I don't know uh, how many of you have gone like morel mushroom hunting. Um, raise your hand if you've done that. It's always such a thrill when you when you're walking through the woods looking for those mushrooms, and all of a sudden you see one there, kind of tucked in under a leaf, right? And just kind of gives you a little boost of adrenaline. Um, so if, if you've gone morel mushroom hunting and you thought that you're going to cover this, uh, this area of woods, maybe you go back here behind the church and you're like, so I'm going to cover most of the woods back here behind the church and see what I can find. But then you come across a spot where there's just mushrooms everywhere. And the more you look, the more they just keep popping out of the 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 leaves and and the the underbrush in the woods um several years ago i was in montana and they had had some major forest fires there and they had a prolific outbreak of mushrooms and when you'd go mushroom hunting there you didn't get very far because you'd stop at one place and there was all of a sudden you realize there's mushrooms all around me and so you'd you'd start picking mushrooms and and you get more excited and and the more you look there's the more mushrooms are right around you and you feel like i can't even get all the mushrooms that are around me that's a little bit like what first peter uh, second peter is like you start into it and and all of a sudden you realize there's so much treasure here i i don't, I don't know how far i can get into it so i, I was planning to cover chapter one today and i think we're going to get through like maybe four verses so so I'm sorry, we're not going to make a lot of progress today, but, but we are going to make progress because the treasure is so rich there. If you are digging for gold in a field and you find a spot where there is in fact gold, you're probably going to stay there and keep digging, right? So, so today we're going to do a little bit of concentrated digging. A little bit of background here. This, this letter, this second letter from Peter was written to the same group that he, he wrote the first one to. Uh, churches in what is now northern Turkey. Um, he said the elect exiles of the dispersion. So these were people who had been scattered from their homeland. and They, they were now in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And this letter was probably written within a year or two of when Peter sent his first letter. If you remember, his first letter was written in the context of the church is entering a time of trial and persecution and suffering. And I want you, as you enter this, this time of intense suffering for a season, I want you to remember, he says, where your hope lies. I want you to remember the salvation that's been given to you and, and the price that has been paid for you. By the precious blood of Christ, you've been ransomed from your futile works. And he's, he's calling them to remember the things that God had done for them so that they would endure persecution. 
Now, in this letter, there's, there's something else that he brings to their attention. It's not just the threat from the outside, but it's the threat that comes from within the church where there's false teachers who are rising up from within them and they're teaching twisted things and, and taking people away from the truth. So in this letter, he's, he's specifically dealing with that. Just, just a little bit more background as to what the church suffered in, under the Roman Empire. So, so Peter was in Rome, presumably from 64 to 67 AD. We're not sure how long before that he was in Rome. But during that time, he was captured, he was put in prison, and he ended up dying as a martyr under Nero. And, and you all remember uh, the, the, the story there of the fire of Rome and how Nero decided to blame that onto the Christians, use them as a scapegoat so that he wouldn't be blamed for the fire. And under Nero, there was intense persecution that broke out, and it spread. This became very common throughout the Roman Empire, not just in Rome, but it spread to other places. And it seems like Peter foresaw some of this, and he wanted to prepare the churches for what they were going to to experience for the fire that they were going to experience. I want to read a letter that was written by a governor, a civil servant, a governor up in in this area of northern Turkey. Now this was uh, approximately 50 years later. So this is a little while later after Peter wrote this letter. But this was just a continuation of the persecution that the Christians experienced. And I want to read this letter because I feel like it gives us insight into how the Romans viewed Christians and how they uh, handled the problem of Christianity that was spreading through their empire like wildfire. This is the letter that he wrote to the emperor. It is my practice, my lord, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I have never before participated in trials of Christians, so I do not know what offenses are to be punished or investigated or to what extent. And I have been not a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age or no difference recognized between the very young and the more mature. Is pardon to be granted for repentance? Or if a man has once been a Christian, is it irrelevant whether he has ceased to be one? Is the name itself to be punished even without offenses or only the offenses perpetrated in connection with the name? Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have followed the following procedure. I interrogated them as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I have no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserves to be punished. There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. Soon, accusations spread because of these proceedings, as usually happens, and several incidents occurred. An anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons, those who denied that they were or had been Christians when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose, together with the statues of the gods, and also cursed Christ, none of which those who are really Christians can, it is said, be forced to do. Those I thought should be discharged. Others 
named by the informer, declared that they were Christians, but then denied it, asserting that they had had been, but had ceased to be some three years before. Others many years, some as much as 25 years. They all worshipped your image and the statues of your gods, of the gods, and cursed Christ. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God, and to bind themselves by oath, not to do some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, nor falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. Even this, they affirmed, they had ceased to do after my edict, by which, in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden political associations. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you, for the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition had spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. But it seems possible to check and cure it. It is certainly quite clear that the temples, which had been almost deserted, have begun to be frequented, that the established religious rites, long neglected, are being resumed, and that from everywhere sacrificial animals are coming, for which until now very few purchasers could be found. Hence, it is easy to imagine what a multitude of people can be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded. That letter was astonishing to me, partly because of the influence that Christianity had in this region. Uh, this was like 50 years or so after, after Peter's time. But Christianity had spread to the place where the pagan temples had closed down and very few buyers could be found for the sacrificial animals anymore. That Christianity had become prevalent. And, and this governor had set out to reestablish the Greek and Roman customs in the place by squashing out Christianity. And he thought he could do it. And when Peter was writing these letters, it seems that he had some foresight into what was going to take place. He says in this second letter to, to the churches that he, was, he himself was about to put off this tent. He was about to, to die because God had revealed that to him. But he wanted to remind them of a few things before he left because he wanted them to keep it in their mind one was their faith their salvation the faith they had received and the very great and precious promises they had been given by god and that they had escaped the corruption that is in the world through sinful desires and had become partakers of the divine nature so one i want to remind you of who you are you have been bought you have received precious promises that, that enabled you to become a partaker of God's nature, the nature of Christ. And then toward the end of the letter, he reminds them of the day of the Lord. And this is right after he warns them of the people who will come in 
teaching destructive heresies and twisting the truth and taking them away from the truth of Christ. And he says, one of the ways that you guard against these deceptions is by constantly remembering that the day of the Lord is coming and it's going to be a day of fiery judgment on unbelievers. And you're not like like those who who say the day of the Lord isn't coming because it hasn't come and everything is going to keep going the way it is. You have your hope set on the return of the Lord. Both of these things led to the same conclusion. Be diligent to increase the qualities in yourself that are the fruit of genuine faith. This is going to affect the way you live. Live lives of holiness and godliness and be found at the return of Jesus without spot and blemish. And so we start into chapter 1 of Second Peter. I'm going to read down into verse 15, even though we're not going to make it that far today. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, of Jesus Christ, our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins." Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right. As long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And here we are, almost 2000 years after his departure, recalling these things. Isn't that amazing? So he starts out introducing himself i think it's cool that back then they used to introduce themselves at the beginning of the letter instead of saying dear dominic uh, you already know if you got a letter that that it's written to you right but you want to know who it's from without going down to the end and say oh that, that's from peter so he says simeon peter and he uses his hebrew name first simeon some texts use the greek transliteration of it simon there were many simons in simon simon's a very common name but he also uses the other name that he has, 
A name that, if you remember, was given to him by Jesus. Peter. The Greek word meaning rock. Jesus had told him when, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, remember Jesus was asking the disciples, who do people say I am? And, and they said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, some a prophet. And he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A bold declaration, blasphemous if not true. But it was true. Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he said, I tell you, you are Peter. You're a rock. And on this rock, and he uses a different word for rock, and I think he's saying it on this revelation that you received from God, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the name stuck. The name Peter stuck with him for the rest of his life. So he uses his original name, but he uses it along with the name that Jesus gave him. A reminder that Jesus was going to build his church. Come what may, the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. And Peter had been working now for 30 years or just over 30 years, to proclaim the truth of the gospel as he had received it from Jesus. What he witnessed as he walked with Christ and listened to his words and watched as he healed the sick and raised the dead and proclaimed the kingdom of God. All this stuff had transformed Peter's life. And he ended up deciding, this is worth giving my entire life for. And he did. He gave his entire life for it. You remember when when, uh, Jesus was saying that if you want to follow me, you have to give up everything you had. And and Peter's like, Jesus, we already did that. We left our families and we left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, Peter, you are going to have your reward. Everyone who does this will have the reward. And at, at, at the end of his life on earth, Jesus told Peter specifically, he wanted him to know what it's going to cost to follow him. Remember when they were out at, on, the, on the Sea of Galilee or out along the beach and they had just eaten some fish. Jesus had just been raised from the dead. And, and Jesus says to Peter, Simon, do you love me? And three times he asked me if he loves him. And Simon, Simon affirms his love. And then Jesus said this. He said, when you were young, you did what you wanted. You went where you wanted to go. But when you're old, others are going to take you to a place where you don't want to go. This is going to be the cost of following me. You're giving up your rights. I'm taking ownership of you, Peter. And if you really love me, it's going to come with a cost. And so he had lived out this life of ministry, and he knew that he was getting close to the end. And so he's, in his last days, probably sitting in prison. We don't know for sure. He's writing this letter to remind the believers in northern Turkey of the salvation that they had been given, of the great and precious promises that they had, and to show them a way that they could hold on to what they had received in light of the persecution that was coming. He says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle 
of Jesus Christ. Now, no doubt his audience already knew who he was, but Peter wants to reaffirm his identity to them. And he first of all calls himself a servant. And the word isn't just servant the way we think of servant, but it means bondservant or slave. And I love this about Peter, that even though he's one of the apostles, he's one of the chief apostles, in fact, he refers to himself, first of all, as a servant. His letters have a tone of humility and servanthood, even though he had that role of chief apostle in Jerusalem. He was one of the, the, the three disciples that had been with Jesus when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He was, he was the one who had walked on water, literally, with Jesus. He was one of the three that was up on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Jesus transfigured, transformed into his glorified state. And he saw Moses and Elijah who had come down from heaven and were there with Jesus. And he heard the voice of God affirming Jesus' identity, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He was also one of the three that accompanied Jesus in the garden to the place where Jesus prayed in agony. Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Peter was one of the ones that saw this. And he was the apostle who on the day of Pentecost, now filled with the Holy Spirit, stood up and preached. And thousands were converted under his sermon. He'd seen all of these things. And now at the end of his life, he calls himself a slave. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I don't belong to myself. And the, what, what has come out of my life is just my reasonable service for the person who owns me, who I'm a slave to. We don't interact much with the idea of slavery nowadays. If we dislike our job, we quit and find another one, right? We find a, a different master. But Peter's audience was quite familiar with the concept of slavery. William Barclay describes a first century slave like this. He says, in the ancient world, a master possessed his slaves in the same sense as he possessed his tools. A servant can change his master, but a slave cannot. Thus, the doulos, that's the Greek word for slave, of God means that he is inalienably possessed by God and belongs to him. In the ancient world, the master could do as he pleased with his slave, having the power of life and death over him. Thus, the slave of God means that he is totally at the disposal of God, who is able to send him wherever he wills and to do with him as he wishes. As a slave has no right of his own, so too the Christian is the man who has no rights of his own. For all his rights have been surrendered to God, his master. He further says, ancient law was such that a master's command was a slave's only law. Even if a slave was told to do something that actually broke the law, he could not protest. For as far as he was concerned, his master's command was the law. Therefore, the slave of God means to owe an unquestioning obedience to God. In the ancient world, the slave had literally no time of his own. Probably didn't have Facebook either, right? No holidays, no time off, no working hours settled by agreement, no leisure, as all his time belonged to the master. Thus, the slave of God means he is to be constantly in the service of God. And Peter, looking at that 
definition of a slave roughly says, I'm a slave. First of all, I'm a slave of Christ. And yes, an apostle. He could have given us a whole list of the amazing things that he had witnessed as a disciple of Jesus and as an apostle. He had seen incredible things as an apostle as well, healings and miracles. He didn't. He didn't waste, waste time on that. Uh, and yes, we have those accounts in the Gospels and the book of Acts. But in this letter, he is emphasizing not himself and what he has done for Christ But he's bringing to our attention Christ, who Christ is, the promises that we have from Christ, the divinity of Christ, the salvation that Christ has provided for us. He's pointing us to that. So a servant, an apostle. And then he says this to those who have obtained a faith. Of equal standing with ours. Did you know your faith in Christ has equal standing with Peter's faith? Equal value, equal position. From the outset, he wants it to be clear that there's no difference between his faith as an eyewitness of Christ. Eyewitness of Christ's divinity and majesty and glory and and the miracles that he performed and of the faith of the people who heard his testimony, his witness. It has the same value, the same worth. Spanish says una fe igualmente preciosa que la nuestra. It has it's the same has the same preciousness as ours. Your faith is just as precious as mine. Why? Why can he say this? Because he knows the source of faith. He knows that it is an act of God who brings this faith about in the heart of a believer. You have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. That word obtained means given by lot or received by lot. And sometimes it's translated as having received something by lot. So this is not something that you earned or managed to to reach, but it was actually given to you, granted to you by God himself. And that's why he can say with confidence, your faith is is of equal standing with ours as those who have actually been eyewitnesses to Jesus. And by by what merit were we given this faith? It says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The terms of their faith is clear. This is not something that you pulled off because you're especially clever. This is the righteousness of God at work in you, giving you revelation of Christ that flesh and blood could never reveal to you, but only the Father in heaven. Peter knows this is the rock that the church is built on. And 30 years after he discovered it, His faith is still all about who Jesus is, the identity of Jesus, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, now you could read this as our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, but that's not what it means. It means our God and Savior, who is Jesus Christ. There's a there's a rule in 
the Greek language, and I'm not a Greek scholar or a linguist, but there's a rule that, that Greek scholars agree on. It's called the Granville Sharp rule that says when there's construction of an article, then a noun, and the word and, and a noun, and the nouns are singular and co- personal and common, they always refer to the same referent. So when he says God and Savior, Jesus Christ, God and Savior both refer to Jesus Christ. So he's saying essentially Jesus is God. This is one of the clearest places it appears in the New Testament. He's agreeing with John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is really important. This is foundational for this letter. Because Peter is building a lot of, a lot of other truth on this fact, on the divinity of Jesus. He's saying, guys, this is what it really comes down to. It's about who Jesus is. It's about who you've placed your faith in. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, you have obtained this, this faith that is of an equal standing with ours. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Remember, these are the churches under fire. They're... they're feeling the squeeze as persecution is starting to spread throughout Rome. And we saw in Peter's first letter where he told the believers to rejoice and not give up hope, even though they were being grieved by various trials. And their faith was being tested the way gold is tested and purified by fire, so that the result may be to the praise and glory of Christ. How can grace and peace be multiplied in situations like these? Well, he tells us how in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how grace and peace are multiplied to us is through the knowledge of Jesus. Paul talks about knowledge. uh, Peter talks about knowledge in this letter almost obsessively. In fact, a lot of the epistles talk about knowledge almost obsessively. And I think that sometimes we have undermined the value of of knowledge simply knowing who god is simply knowing who jesus is do you know you can't believe in jesus unless you know about him first romans tells us that how, how will they believe unless they hear they can't believe in jesus you can't come to saving faith in jesus unless you know who he is you must know that he was god in the flesh that he came to to, to the world, and to the earth, and he gave his life for you. Without that knowledge, you cannot believe into salvation. So knowledge is the foundation of faith. It's what, it's what underlies it. And it's not, not because we've managed to figure out, but it's through the revelation of the Spirit who, who reveals Jesus Christ to us. Now, Judges, Judges 2, I was reading that earlier this week, and, and it, it talks about the generation that, was, that came along right after Joshua. If you remember, Joshua led the people from the land of Canaan into, uh, from the land of Egypt, or from the wilderness, between Egypt and Canaan, into the land of Canaan. And, and they saw amazing things that God did for them. You remember the walls of Jericho came down, and they saw incredible things. They saw the, the Jordan River parted, kind of like the previous generation had seen the Red Sea parted. They saw all these incredible things that God had done. And they believed. And they obeyed Him. For the most part. This generation obeyed Him. 
Now, they didn't drive everybody out of Canaan the way God told them, so they they didn't obey him perfectly. But for the most part, they believed God because they saw his works. But then it says something that's very troubling. Another generation came along after Joshua who did not see the things that God had done for Israel. And what was the result? They wholesale abandoned God and worshipped the idols in Canaan, just like the people they had been sent to drive out. Why? Because they didn't know the Lord. They didn't see the works that he had done, and they didn't apparently retain what God had done for the previous generation. And so they abandoned him. Hosea famously delivered this word from the Lord, my people perish For a lack of knowledge. They're destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you God said. From being a priest to me. So knowledge is essential. For our faith. Now I know we often go to uh, 1 Corinthians. where, Where Paul says. Knowledge puffs up but love builds up. Right? But he was talking in, in, in the context, he was telling them that the way they were misusing knowledge and elevating it to a wrong position, they were using knowledge against each other because they had superior spiritual knowledge and, and liberties because of their knowledge. And they were destroying each other through that knowledge. So, so knowledge without love is useless. But that doesn't mean that we don't need knowledge. And the epistles talk about it prolifically now there's there's two words two different words that that at least that are translated knowledge in peter's second epistle Uh, one word is gnosis which is kind of a general knowledge and and the the other word the one he uses here through the knowledge of god and our savior jesus christ the word is epignosis and and i don't want to i don't want to exaggerate the differences between these words i i read a bunch of stuff about the differences in how these words are used. But from the best I can understand is epignosis connotates a fuller understanding of something. Gnosis is what you know as cursory knowledge. You, you kind of understand something about something, right? You know that, that the benches are, are all uh, set up in rows here. Epignosis is when you come up close and, and you study it in detail and you really find out about that thing. It's a fuller knowledge, a, a more perfect knowledge. So that might be an, an overstatement of the difference. Paul often prayed for this epignosis, for this fuller, more intimate knowledge for the churches that he addressed. In fact, for the Ephesians, he said that he prayed for them that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That was his prayer, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God. And in chapter 4, and we saw this a couple Sundays ago in our discussion with Steve, that God gives gifts to the body for the purpose of building it up. And what's, what's the end point? What's the objective? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's that same word, epignosis, full knowledge, perfect knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In Philippians, Paul prayed for the church. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge, that same word, 
and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And he told the Colossians, he said, so from the day we heard about you, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will. You might ask, what's his will? And he says it in other places. With the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That same up close knowing, bearing fruit in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. I'm curious if anyone remembers um, what Sandeep said when he was here at a youth conference. I don't know, was it six, seven years ago maybe? He asked a question. He said, what is the will of God for you? Because that's a big question we ask, right? What is God's will? If I just know what God's will is. And then he showed us from some of the epistles what God's will is. And this was the summary. God's will is for you to be exactly like Jesus in the purity of his character. That is the will of God. And how can you be like Jesus in the purity of his character if you don't know him, if you don't know who he is, if you don't listen to his words? Because that's how we find out who he is. We listen to his words. We look at the things that he did. God desires all people to be saved and to come to this full knowledge of the truth. Peter goes on here. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, I don't know how many of you woke up this morning and said, I'm equipped with everything I need today. I have everything I need. The divine power of Christ has given me today everything I need for life and godliness. Do you know what that word all means? It literally just means all. He gave you everything you need. No exclusions. By whose power? By Christ. And he says his divine power, not merely his power as a as a man, as a son of man, but his divine power. There we're going back to the fact that Jesus is God. Because he is God, he has all power. And Jesus said that just before he left the earth. He said, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth. Because of this, go, and I'm going to be with you. He grants us his power and resources when we need them. Now, that, that word grant is a word that means you just gratuit gratuitously received it you were just given it like a grant right when you when you apply for a grant you don't necessarily you don't necessarily have to earn that grant there might be certain qualifications that you have to meet but the grant is gratuitously given to you when i applied to uh the pa program at duke university um i received a letter it was on my birthday it was really cool because it came on my birthday i received an email that that was like, congratulations, Daniel, you've been accepted into Duke University's PA program. And right along with that, they said, we've selected you, along with a handful of students, to receive 
this scholarship. Now, it's just a partial scholarship, um, $20,000, but it, it helps, makes a difference. I didn't do anything to earn that. And I was just like, whoa. I, I was so shocked by it. And Peter's saying, this is exactly what has happened to you. You've just been granted this power. Because of the divine power of, of Christ. He's just granted you everything that you need. Pertaining to life and godliness. Everything that's necessary to live your life the way Jesus lived it. To live your life with divine power flowing through you. You have everything you need. See, you and I don't know yet what we're going to face tomorrow. We might think we have tomorrow planned out. But actually, we have no idea what tomorrow is going to hold. No idea. You might be in a terrible car accident tomorrow. You might lose a spouse or a parent or a child. Or your house or your job or your best friend. We literally have no way to predict what, what tomorrow is going to throw our, our way. And we don't know what we're going to need for it. You don't know what temptation is going to confront you tomorrow unexpectedly. And you, and you don't know what you need for it. But God does. And he says, I, I'm giving you everything you need. Literally, everything you need for this. I want you to imagine just for a minute that you're being sent on a complex, months-long mission into uncharted territory. You've never been there before. You don't know what the dangers are there. You know there's enemies around. You know there's... Lots of situations and predicaments that you could get yourself into. You have no idea what you're going to face when you go into this mission. One of the primary things on your mind, I'm certain, would be, how do I prepare? How do I know what I'm going to need? How do I know what to take along? Even, even just when we go camping, right? Like if we're gone for four days or something, we sit down and we're like, okay, I, I want to make sure I have everything I need. I don't want to forget my flashlight or my knife or um, salt because all the food is bland if you forget to take salt along. But we, we sit down and we think, what am I going to need? We want to anticipate everything, including what we might not be able to anticipate. And so you're sitting down and you're thinking, what am I going to need? Because I have no idea what this is going to throw at me. I don't know what, what weapons I need. I don't know how much ammo I'm going to need. Imagine the uncertainty of going into a mission like that. But then, you have a captain who comes to you and he says, Hey, I've gone where you're going before. I know what it's like there. And I just want to let you know, I have your back. I'm, I'm more interested in the success of your mission than you are even. Because this is my mission. You're serving me in this. And I want you to know that we're going to provide you with everything you need. Anything you could possibly need. We have the best team behind you, ready to supply you with whatever supplies you need, ready to bring you more ammo. We have the best, most foolproof communication systems. And at a moment's notice, we can get air support. We can drop supplies in whatever you need. You just let me know. We'll get it to you. Changes the perspective, doesn't it? And I know the analogy is, is limited because there's going to be things that even your captain may not have been able to anticipate. However, the one who promised you his great and precious promises, 
literally knows everything that you need. He knows everything that you're going to encounter. He knows all the details of tomorrow. And he knows exactly what you need for tomorrow. And he says, I've given you everything you need for it. It's a perfect tense. So he has given us everything, but it's an ongoing effect. The promises are there, but the promises continue to have their effect in our lives. His divine power has granted us all things that are necessary for life and godliness. And how is this power made available to us? Here's this word again. Through the knowledge, the epignosis of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Listen, he called you. Raise your hand if Jesus, in fact, called you to believe in him. That means if he called you, he is more interested in your success, in the best possible outcome than you are. This is his mission. And he's made sure to equip you with everything that you need. You have to know the source of your equipping. Know the promises. And more importantly, know the promiser. Know that the one who promised cannot lie. As we walk with Jesus and we get to know him more fully, more truly, it's through this true knowing of who he is that we're equipped with everything we need for life and godliness. I think that we're often satisfied with just a superficial knowledge of Jesus. And I think what Steve said earlier is so very true. Man, you stop for five minutes anytime. You pull out your phone and you just go to, you know, brainlessly scrolling something and packing your mind with all kinds of information that you really didn't need. But it's just kind of interesting and fun and and you know, releases these chemicals over our brain that makes us feel good. And so, so we just kind of default to that. What, what if, what if we would take those moments and plug in to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to know you more. Is it just a song we sing on Sunday mornings? Or is it actually something that drives us with the way we live? I need to know you. I need to know who you are. I'm not satisfied with the superficial knowledge of the truth. We need to want to know about Jesus, Jesus the way the 14-year-olds in this church want to know about cars, right? <clears throat> this might be lost on some of you, but, but hang out around some of the uh, 13, 14-year-olds here, right? L- like they're, they obsess over knowing more about, about that car, that car that went past a, a Ferrari or whatever it was. My goodness, they know a lot about it. Why? Because they want to know. It interests them. And for a follower of Jesus, wanting to know who Jesus is, wanting to know about him should consume us. And not just hypothetically. I came across this uh, story. Dr. Congdon, I don't know who that was. But I do know who R.A. Torrey is, a, a renowned Bible teacher. Dr. Congdon once approached Bible teacher R.A. Torrey, complaining that he could get nothing out of his Bible studies. 
Please tell me how to study it so that it will mean something to me. Dr. Torrey replied, read it. I do read it, he said. Read it some more. How? Dr. Torrey says this, take some book and read it 12 times a day for a month. And he recommended 2 Peter. Dr. Congdon later said this, my wife and I read 2 Peter three or four times in the morning, two or three times at noon, and two or three times at dinner. Soon I was talking 2 Peter to everyone I met. It seemed as though the stars in the heavens were singing the story of 2 Peter. I read 2 Peter on my knees, marking passages, teardrops mingled with crayon colors. And I said to my wife, see how I have ruined this part of my Bible. Yes, she said, but as the pages have been getting black, your life has been getting white. The promises of God are going to have an impact on our lives if we interact with them. They won't if you don't know them. You must know them. And you must know the one who promised them. His divine power has granted to us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge, through the up-close knowing of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. See, it's not just about... What situations I'm going to encounter today or tomorrow. It's about knowing the person who has equipped you with exactly what you need for when you need it. I find this incredibly comforting. The last couple of years, Melissa and I have been through some challenging situations that we haven't always felt equipped for. But we know something. We know that our captain has equipped us. We know our equipper and he is faithful. And so we can look at the next two years with the challenges that are there. We don't know what all those challenges are going to be. They look huge. Some of them look insurmountable. But we know that Christ, through his divine power, has equipped us with everything we need to confront those challenges. I don't know what your challenges are. I don't know what's looming in front of you, what looks too big for you at this point in your life. But you can walk into it with confidence. Because His divine power has equipped you with everything you need. He's called you to His own glory and excellence. And that that could possibly be translated by His own glory and excellence. But either way, the point is clear. It's His glory and excellence. That's what your calling is based on. By his own glory and excellence or virtue, he has granted us these exceeding great and precious promises. So I just want to look at just a couple of these promises because the Bible is full. And there's thousands of promises in the word of God. And it would take us all week to go through them. But I just want to look at a few of them that maybe Peter was recalling as he read this. Last Sunday we heard one. Where Jesus met the Samaritan woman and, and he, he said to her, whoever drinks the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In John 6, Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
I think that's probably one that Peter held on to, especially after he denied Jesus. He had to remind himself, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For this is the will of my father, Jesus said, that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus said to Martha when her brother had just died, he told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Michael mentioned one a little earlier out of Romans 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. That's a promise. That's, that's one of these great and precious promises that God has given to us to equip us. And, and Jesus told his disciples just before he left, he said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I'm coming again so that I can receive you to myself. So that where I am, you may be also. Through these promises, you can become partakers of the divine nature. These promises were not given to make us feel better about ourselves, but to become partakers, to, to come into fellowship with the divine nature of Jesus. John 20 says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through sinful desire. We've laid hold of these precious promises. How did Peter know that these promises were true? He had seen with his eyes. He, had, he saw when Jesus said to Jairus' daughter, little girl, I say to you, arise. She rose up from the dead. He saw that when there was a raging storm and Jesus just said, peace, be still, the storm instantly calmed. He saw when their good friend Lazarus had already been in the grave four days and was beginning to stink and rot, that Jesus said, come forth. And death couldn't hold him. He saw with his own eyes when Jesus was transfigured into a glorified state and the father spoke from heaven saying this is my beloved son in whom i'm well pleased he knew who jesus was and he knew the power of his words he knew that when jesus said be clean the leper was cleansed when he said receive your sight the blind person saw and so he laid hold of these promises and said i'm going to believe them for the rest of your life, my life. And I want you to believe them for the rest of your life. Because this is what gives you entrance into being partakers of the divine nature. Um, in Spurgeon's Bible, it said that on a lot of the margins, next to a promise, he would write T and P. Which just meant tried and proven. Tried it and it's true. What promise of God are you going to take this week and say, I'm going to try it? Do that. You'll find it's true. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you for the exceedingly great and precious promises that you've given us. Thank you that because of the divine nature of Christ, the one who called us to his own glory and excellence, we can become partakers of his divine nature. And we've been equipped with everything that we need, regardless of what we face this week, regardless of what the enemy throws at us, regardless of circumstances, regardless of whether our friends forsake us, or we come against what appear to be insurmountable obstacles. God, we choose to trust your promises, your great and precious promises. I pray that as a church, we would live that out faithfully and practically this week. That we would take your promise and try it and show that it is true. In Jesus' name, amen.